Deceptions podcast. Which one's your pop? That's him. Okay, okay, you guys. <laughs> Very funny. You guys are being real mature. Maybe we were adopted. <laughs> okay, real mature, guys. That's a clip from Back to the Future. Yes, a film I've actually seen. It's a favourite here at Underceptions. One of the other podcasts is even named after it, DeLorean Philosophy with Steve McAlpine. I hope you've checked that out. Anyway, in the clip, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, has travelled back in time to the 1950s, and he's watching his dad get bullied at school. Marty's mission is to make his mum, the most popular girl in school, fall in love with his dad all over again. The big issue facing Marty, though, is just how much of a loser his dad is. It's a little disappointing. Well, like Marty McFly, we are about to travel back in time and confront the cultural sins and wins of the early church. And for some of us, it's going to be a little disappointing. For others, those who aren't really fans of the church, I suspect it's just going to confirm what you've always thought, that religion is really just going through the motions. We're about to visit some of the ancient Christians and see that they were actually real human beings with flaws and hang-ups and virtues that we might recognise in ourselves today. We'll see how the struggle between Christianity and culture in the past can speak to the struggle between Christianity and culture today. There is, after all, as the Bible says, nothing new under the sun. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses, and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash Undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. Now, you have a striking thesis in your new book that there were pockets of what you call cultural Christians, cultural Christianity, even in these early days. What do you mean by this expression, cultural Christianity? I wrote this book mostly while I was still living in the Bible Belt in the American South. And you see, this is very much the sort of thing we think of on, in the Bible Belt, although cultural Christians exist anywhere. And this is the idea where people go to church. So the expectation that everybody goes to church on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, perhaps God gets and Christianity belief get kind of shelved into a different pocket. 
That's Nadia Williams. Until recently, she was Professor of Ancient History at the University of West Georgia, specialising in Greco-Roman military history. And she's just authored the brilliant new book, Cultural Christians in the Early Church. Before we started our tour back in time, I asked her to define cultural Christianity. You go to work, you do whatever else, you have friendships, you eat meals, whatever else you would be doing with your life, and you're not necessarily thinking about what you did on Sunday as connecting to the other six days of the week. And so that's what I mean. So in the process, you are more influenced by the culture around, which is exactly what we would expect would happen if you spend two hours a week with Jesus and the the rest of the very many hours of the week doing everything else. So that's the idea that culture becomes the lens through which you see the world. How many times, like a week, or just how many times in general, do you think about the Roman Empire? Not a lot. How often? Once every month? Uh, Maybe three or four times a month. (laughs) You think about the Roman Empire once a week? It has a lot of big, like, stories and lessons, like, within the Roman Empire of what to do and what not to do, so yeah. I don't have time to dive into this. I have an answer for it. But yeah, once a week. In just 24 hours, that post with the hashtag Roman Empire has gotten like 6 million views with women asking the men in their lives exactly how often they think about the Roman Empire. How often do I think about it? Yeah. I don't know. I guess technically like every day. That's a clip from the Today Show in September 2023. It seems that a lot of men are spending their time thinking about the Roman Empire, which seems entirely plausible to me. The Romans, who ruled the world for half a millennium, provided the cultural backdrop for the early Christians. It's impossible to understand early cultural Christianity without first understanding the culture of the Romans. Nadia says it's not just men, though, who should be thinking about the Roman Empire. So hop in the DeLorean. We're off to ancient Rome. Now, apparently, everybody's thinking about the Roman Empire. Yes, indeed. Uh, We've become hip. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We we who think about it every couple of minutes. You recently turned your attention to Christians in the Roman Empire, which which is a fascinating topic, obviously. But before we get to the Christians specifically, can can you give my listeners an idea of some of the dominant cultural values in the Roman Empire that are significant to understand before you then look at Christians in the Roman Empire? Absolutely. And the one that comes to mind first is the hierarchy. So today we think about people, we value people, even if not everybody necessarily acts it out in everything they do or think each day. We think about people as intrinsically important because they're people. In the Roman world, there was this sense that some people were more important than others. And it was based on, like, say, in the Roman Empire, if you're a Roman citizen, you're much more important than non-citizen men over women. If you're enslaved Well, nobody cares if you're suffering. So this idea of treating people based on specific categories into which they fall is something that is very alien to the way we think today. So from that hierarchical perspective, how did Roman authorities view the Christians to the degree that they took any notice of them at all? It's interesting because in my book, the period that I cover goes from early on when they have no idea who these people are. We see in our sources a greater awareness 
from Romans about Christians, but a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of it based on that idea of hierarchy, like why would these people say that everybody is significant? Why would they talk about loving each other? That can't be right. So all kinds of misunderstandings that stem from the upside down, kind of the reversal of the view of humanity that Christianity had from the beginning. So just like those who were around Jesus couldn't understand, why is he interacting with the poor, the dirty, the ones who don't wash their hands properly before meals? We see a similar, even greater misunderstanding understandings arising among the Romans looking at the early Christians. So when Governor Pliny writes to Trajan, the emperor, in the early second century CE, he's kind of wondering, like, who are these people? All I know is if they're in my province, it probably means nothing good. Our second stop is in the Roman province of Bithynia and Pontus. It's in modern-day northwest Turkey. Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with his uncle, you guessed it, Pliny the Elder, was an elite Roman statesman who served as governor of the region between 111 and 113. He's a wonderful source because we have over a hundred of his letters to various people, including to the emperor Trajan. He's a refined man. He loves his wife. He's very bookish. In fact, in one of his letters, he describes how he always takes books and notepads on his hunting trips. Because while he's waiting around for the wild boars to appear, he wants to be able to read poetry and the philosophers and then jot down his own thoughts. Christians at the time wouldn't have found him quite the gentleman. Pliny persecuted them brutally. We have a letter to his boss, Emperor Trajan, from the year 112. Pliny asks for advice on how to deal with this strange new religion that everyone's talking about. It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in the trials of Christians, I, therefore, do not know what offences it is the practice to punish or investigate, and to what extent. And I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age, or no difference between the very young and the more mature. Whether a pardon is to be granted for repentance, or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one whether the name itself, even without offences, or only the offences associated with the name, are to be punished. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. 
but I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Pliny, Letters 10, 96-97 And we have Trajan's response to Pliny. It's fascinating. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished, with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshipping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. The promise that you could be protected if you just denied Jesus opened the door to one of the earliest cultural pressures for Christians, giving it all up. So, so Pliny has, it seems like he's just inherited a policy, maybe from the previous governor or something. He just assumes that you torture and kill Christians. So why? What is Pliny thinking? Because we know from Pliny's letters that he's, he's quite a Roman gentleman. He's not, you know, the biggest tyrannical jerk on the planet at the time. Why? What's his problem with Christianity? It's really fascinating the way he explains it in this letter, because when he talks about torturing and ultimately ordering execution, he says, I offered them a chance to recant and they refused. Three chances, right? Yes, three chances. That's right. What a gentleman. Exactly. I mean, from a Roman perspective, from a Roman governor's perspective, he is being about as kind and gentle as he possibly can with his people. And he's just a very cautious kind of guy. With Pliny, you can see kind of the almost PTSD of having lived through multiple really awful emperors. And so now, with Trajan, who was a much gentler kind of emperor, wasn't just executing all of Senate for like, I don't know, because today was a bad day. And still, Pliny is very cautious. He asks a lot of questions. In this case, he says this level of stubbornness had to be punished. So for Pliny, he realized that as a governor, his job first and foremost was to make sure that everybody stayed loyal to Rome. And there's this realization it's funny because he says he knows nothing about Christians, but he figured almost without realizing it, he figured one key aspect, which is loyalty to Christ for these people took precedence over loyalty to Caesar. And that is treason. Pliny's policy was somewhat effective. Some of the Christians he rounded up did indeed bend the knee to Rome and to the pagan gods. Many, perhaps most, didn't, but certainly some did. We see it in the letter of Pliny. So on the one hand, he does speak of loyal Christians who would die rather than offer sacrifice. And he says, you know, I understand that no true Christian can be made to make a sacrifice to our gods. But he also tells us, (laughs) tells Trajan, there were Christians who very happily said, oh, no, we gave that up. Or at least they did offer the sacrifice. Tell us about that. We see precisely that idea of people who who value their lives 
their community, whatever else, like they're standing in their community a lot more. It is funny because they tell Pliny, it's like, oh yeah, we used to, we used to go to church in some cases, he says up to 25 years ago, but we, we abandoned it. So we see this question, which comes up so much in the New Testament. So it's fascinating to see this pagan source telling us about this, that this really is happening. People who are trying to weigh things out, how much is this worth to me? And the question of, to what extent do I dedicate my life to this? So very much kind of brain versus heart conversions that we see going on already this early on. Right from the start, Christians struggled with the pressure to conform. The parents of these Christians in Bithynia in 112 had actually known the apostles. The apostle Peter had written a letter to them. It's listed in the New Testament as 1 Peter. And it's actually written to Bithynia and Pontus. Within a generation of all that, though, these Christians were willing to deny the faith of their parents and go back to the gods of Rome. Maybe that was the problem. For some in that second generation of the church, faith was simply the faith of their parents. It was family tradition and not much more. But persecution wasn't the only challenge early Christians faced. After the break, we're off to Sin City. Roman Corinth. This episode of Undeceptions is proudly brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Know the Theologians, written by podcast alumni Jennifer Powell McNutt and David McNutt. The McNutts invite us to meet the theological giants of the centuries, whose ideas have shaped not just Christianity, but also our world, whether you're a believer or a doubter. They cover a dozen or more pivotal figures spanning Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholics, and the Protestant traditions. This book is an excellent, readable introduction to the biggest names in Christian thinking. Whether you're embarking on a personal quest for knowledge or seeking a material for a kind of book club, I honestly reckon Know the Theologians has you covered. Each chapter is packed with insights, reflection questions, and recommended readings. You can order your copy of Know the Theologians today on Amazon, of course, or visit zondervan.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions, and you can learn more. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-3 to Those are the opening lines of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth, written around AD 55. It sounds like a normal, holy Christian greeting, but we keep reading and it turns out this first century church was playing with the fire of Greco-Roman hedonism. Corinth was one of four principal cities in the first century, along with Rome, of course, Antioch, and Alexandria. 
It was a fertile region with a lovely network of springs. Unusually, it had two harbours, one north connecting it to the west, to Rome, and one to the southeast connecting it to the east, like Turkey, Egypt, Syria, Israel, and so on. This made it a strategic city. In earlier times, Corinth had been the centre of Greek learning, art, religion, and entertainment. Strabo, in the first century BC, reports that the Temple of Aphrodite, the city's patron goddess, had a thousand temple slaves, men and women, available for pleasure. A Greek verb was actually coined in this period, Corinthiasomai. It means act like a Corinthian. It's a bit like saying someone was into sex, drugs and rock and roll. Bohemian Corinth became a little more establishment in the 40s BC, when Julius Caesar declared Corinth a Roman colony. That made it a little Rome, with all sorts of privileges and benefactions other cities didn't enjoy. Romans flocked to the city, and it became this weird amalgam of power and fun. It was kind of like New York, close enough to Washington to have connections with power, and close enough to Europe to have some culture. It wasn't an accident that the Apostle Paul chose Corinth to establish one of his earliest churches, but it came with challenges. So give us your best example of cultural Christianity that we find in the New Testament texts themselves. My favorite example to which I keep coming back are Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. I mean, here's this church that he had a really good connection with, knew so well, and he writes to them and says like, guys, what is going on here? And just lists instance after instance of culture influencing the way they behave. So for example, like with the Lord's Supper, the idea some people are getting drunk, other people go home hungry, which is so obviously influenced by Greek and Roman feasting practices. The example I was thinking of with the drunkenness was Plato's Symposium. So this idea of Aristocrats, of course, in any Greek city-state like Corinth would come together and get drunk because that was kind of the socially acceptable place and time to do this. So for them, the idea of feasting together has that connotation. But then suddenly they transfer this wholesale to church. And as Paul is trying to explain, it's like, this is not working. This is not what the Lord's Supper was designed to do. So we see it's not just outsiders misunderstanding Christianity, but even Christians themselves thinking, okay, we take the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? And suddenly bringing in these cultural practices that go with men drinking together or people sharing food together. And suddenly you realize, well, these things looked similar on the surface. It is a supper that you take together, but this is something very, very different. If you were a man... By the way, if you want to read the source, head to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to find Paul in full flight. He writes, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul wasn't messing around. The other topic, of course, that's in 1 Corinthians is sex. So tell us, how true is the cliché about the Roman world that it's all debauchery? I mean, some of the listeners have seen those documentaries and films set in ancient Rome. Looks pretty uh, confronting. 
Yeah, if you were a man in the Roman world, sex was cheap and readily available for purchase. And especially if you live in a large city like Corinth, this is a metropolis. Everything is available and very affordable. And apparently for the Corinthians, they were just like everybody else in their town in this regard which again is shocking for Paul. And we see, and this is one of those things, again, that's so shocking in Christianity, the idea of holding men to the same standards of morality as women. Everybody in the pagan world did not want women being promiscuous because paternity mattered for inheritance and citizenship and so on. Children born out of wedlock could not be citizens in any of the Greek city-states, which had significant implications. But for men, it was just kind of expected, like, boys will be boys. And suddenly Paul is saying no. How would you describe the difference between Paul's, the Judeo-Christian idea of sex. How different is it from the Roman one? Very different. So the concept of covenant that we think of with marriage in Christianity did not exist in the Roman world or even in the Greek world. It was all about property and kind of alliances between families in the case of aristocrats. But even for people who were not aristocrats, this was about property and having children who would inherit family property. So it was not something that was based on something like higher than just your duties to your particular family in the state. Whereas with Christianity, suddenly there is this idea that marriage is not just about you. Your desires are not the most important thing in the world. So this concept of something that is much greater than you can imagine here on earth coming through, which is just incomprehensible yet again. It implies this equality of women in God's eyes, which, of course, none of the Greeks or the Romans would have recognized because the whole idea is, yes, the woman belongs to the man who married her, not the other way around. No, does not compute. Uh, that is just not how things work. I asked Nadia about gender roles more broadly, how the Romans thought of them and how the Christians responded. She took us to early 3rd century Carthage in North Africa, now Tunisia, and to two well-known Christian women whose martyrdoms are recorded in detail. Okay, what about the broader issue of of gender? You've already hinted at the Roman view of gender. How how did the Christians accommodate Roman views, uh, co-opt Roman views, or, or differ from Roman views of the relations between men and women, outside the bed, I mean. So a really good example of that that I talk about in the book is uh, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. To me, that's a striking example because we see the church in Carthage being forced to deal with this question of what do you do with this woman who appears to have been divorced, has probably as a result of her conversion to Christianity, and here she is now preparing to die as a martyr. Perpetua and Felicitas, or Felicity, were two Christian women executed in Carthage in 203. They were dear friends, but from vastly different backgrounds. Perpetua was a noblewoman and already a young mum, and Felicitas was a slave who was already pregnant at the time of her arrest. Amazingly, Perpetua kept a diary while she was in prison in the days leading up to her execution. There's nothing like it in the ancient world. Tertius and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, 
bribed the soldiers to allow us to go a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby, who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother, and I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace, so that I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. One day, while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum, and straight away the story went about the neighbourhood near the forum, and a huge crowd gathered. We walked up to the prisoner's dock. All the others when questioned admitted their guilt. Then when it came my turn, my father appeared with my son, dragged me from the step, and said, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Hilarianus, the governor said to me, Have pity on your father's grey head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperors. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian? said Hilarianus. And I said, Yes, I am. When my father persisted in trying to dissuade me, Hilarianus ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod. I felt sorry for my father, just as if I myself had been beaten. Then Hilarianus passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beasts and we returned to prison in high spirits. But my baby had got used to being nursed at the breast and to staying with me in prison. So I sent the deacon straight away to my father to ask for the baby but father refused to give him over but as God willed the baby had no further desire for the breast nor did I suffer any inflammation and so I was relieved of any anxiety for my child and of any discomfort in my breasts her own diary account ends and in the days that followed she was executed And we have the record of that. But it's too brutal to read. I teach the history of Christian persecution here at Wheaton College, but I don't print that part of the primary source for my students. Suffice it to say, Perpetua is mauled by an animal trained specifically for this kind of entertainment. And then when it all goes on too long for the crowd, her throat is cut. This text, which is largely the words of a woman, was copied and distributed far and wide. It was an unusual thing in the ancient world. She walks us through in this journal that she wrote, which is so just mind-boggling as well, the idea of a woman writing a document like that. When we think journals in the ancient world, we think of people like Julius Caesar keep keeping his commentarii, a journal of military campaigns, while Perpetua is keeping her own journal of, you could call it her spiritual military campaign, as she's preparing for her own death in a battle, really, at the arena with wild beasts. She tells us, like, 
about this this process. And of course, the enslaved woman who will die with her, Felicity, is pregnant and gives birth the night before they're martyred. So there's this whole like picture that reading to us, it is shocking. And the writer, the anonymous writer who added kind of the epilogue, the, the description of their martyrdom says, even the Romans watching their execution were shocked like at this, to see these young women who, who just looked so weak and tender and frail and everybody's just kind of moved with compassion for them. These are Roman audiences. These are not people easily moved to compassion. And yet in this case, they are, but also just the local church caring for them. So to me, that was fascinating that they are in prison awaiting execution. And there are two people from the local church who keep visiting them. And presumably, they're the ones who collect her diary, her journal, before her execution and arrange for publication, which to me is fascinating that here they are taking this like revolutionary, never before done kind of document, and they ensure publication. I mean, they could have just burned it or trashed it. No one had to like preserve it. And yet they did not just forget her story, but made sure that everybody in the Roman world could read it. It is amazing. She even she even speaks about getting mastitis because the baby wasn't there for a while and she wasn't able to breastfeed and then she got it back and she got over her her inflammation in the breast, she, she says. The bowels loosened into a constant flux, exhausts the strength of the body. A fever contracted in the very marrow of the bones breaks out into ulcers of the throat. The intestines are shaken by continual vomiting. The bloodshot eyes burn. The feet of some or certain parts of their members are cut away by the infection of diseased putrefaction. By a weakness developing through the losses and injuries of the body, either the gait is enfeebled or the hearing impaired or the sight blinded. St. Cyprian of Carthage on Mortality, 252 AD. That's a grisly account from Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage in the mid-3rd century, when the city was struck by a terrible plague. Experts call this pandemic the Plague of Cyprian. Not because he was to blame, of course, but because he's the only one who gave us a serious medical description of what went on. And from the description, experts think he's describing Ebola. Anyway, Cyprian, who himself would be later executed by the Romans, worked really hard to ensure that Christians had the right attitude toward the pandemic. For one thing, he insisted Christians shouldn't think they're going to be immune from the disease. Belonging to God's kingdom, he said, provides no magical protection from experiencing the sadness of the world. The other silly Christian idea he had to work against was the complaint of some Christians that this plague is going to rob them of the chance to be martyred by the Romans. Getting martyred was an honourable death, they thought. Dying of sickness was lame by comparison. Cyprian basically told them to shut up and get busy serving the sick. He insisted that the truly honourable life, and if it must be, the honourable death, was attending to the needs of others in crisis. Here are his words from a published sermon and circular to his region. What significance all this has? This plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of each and every one and examines the minds of the human race. 
whether the well care for the sick, whether masters show compassion to their ailing slaves, whether the rich bestow and give something. Although this mortal crisis has contributed nothing else, it has certainly accomplished this. Let's go 50 years forward to Cyprian and his amazing work during one of the great pandemics. So tell us ab about Cyprian and, and his work during the plague. And was this one time when the Christians did stand out or were they also cultural Christians in this terrible moment? It's a fascinating example of how a pastor of a church can make a big difference. So Cyprian was an adult convert to Christianity, and shortly after he became bishop of this pretty large church, the most influential see in the province of North Africa, this plague arrives. So it's like, poor guy. I mean, he didn't seek to be a bishop. He was a recent convert anyway, but here he is stuck in this horrific pandemic, and it's in the middle of the third century CE. So the Roman Empire is just not a good place to be. Like if you're ever time traveling, do not go back to the third century Roman Empire. Like, trust me, you don't want to. Political turmoil, emperors getting assassinated left and right. But one of those emperors, Dacius, during the little time that he is on the throne, starts the first ever empire-wide persecution of Christians in 251. So Cyprian has to deal with that pastoring during a pandemic from the plague and a persecution all at the same time. And uh, one of Emperor Decius kicked off a persecution around the year 250. All citizens had to worship the pagan gods and get a certificate verifying that, or they were executed. Some big names were killed at this time. Bishop Alexander of Jerusalem, Bishop Babylus of Antioch, even Bishop Fabian of Rome. And soon, it was Cyprian's turn. And astonishingly, we have the Roman transcript of his trial and execution from September 258. It ends with these haunting words. Proconsul Galerius Maximus pronounced the following sentence. You have long lived an irreligious life and have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome. It is the sentence of this court that Thassius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Bishop Cyprian replied, Thanks be to God. Cyprian was the best of the bunch. Some of the Christians he was trying to lead, not so much. And one of his really just the most fascinating texts on the plague, he essentially gives us a Q&A with his congregation. Like, here are the kinds of things that I'm hearing from some of you, like people wondering, why do Christians also die of the plague? Shouldn't we be better than the pagans. But the one that really stands out and to me is an example of cultural Christianity is apparently some people in his church were saying, we're not going to care for those who are sick because we're saving ourselves for death and martyrdom. I mean, that that is crazy. So the idea of people who say, I want to be a martyr for the church. Therefore, I'm above like going to care for those sick and dying ones. Like they can, you know, they can manage things themselves. And so Cyprian is really just appalled and tells them like, you guys, yeah, oh, he has words. And 
Of course, this is very much cultural because we think back to Homer, just the idea of epic heroes, like people who die really gory, horrific deaths, but you die a hero's death. And that's what Perpetua did. She got a hero's death very much in the eyes of the church. And that's what these wannabe martyrs want. There's no hero's death in, well catching the plague and dying because you cared for a sick neighbor. And so this is where Cyprian calls his church to action. But it's fascinating, Rodney Stark's work on the third century, he's argued that it's precisely that tenderness, that care for the community that the Christians showed, including during the plague, is precisely why the church exploded in growth in this period. So from the mid-third century on, the church is suddenly like really taking off. The late professor of sociology, Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, suggests that by the year 300, there were several million Christians in the Roman Empire. He puts this down largely to the social care of the Christians. I'm sure that was part of it, but I have my own theories about the growth of Christianity, and maybe there's an episode in that one day. In any case, after a last burst of persecution between the years 303 and 312, called the Great Persecution by Roman historians, there was a sudden peace for the Christians. In late October 312, Christians woke up to the news that the newly victorious Roman emperor was proclaiming himself a Christian. It must have been a disorienting moment, and it had massive consequences. So, we're off to the new emperor's new capital, the city of Constantinople, named after himself, Constantine. It's the dawn of a new era of cultural Christianity. After the break. Oh yeah, and if you're playing along in our hidden code treasure hunt to win a Roman denarius, here's the final episode code word. Plague. Imagine a world where you have to worry each day about where you're going to get clean water, where access to clean water is literally a lifeline. In the East African nation of Burundi, that is the sad reality. 86% of the population lives in extreme poverty, and more than half the children under five suffer from frequent diarrheal diseases due to lack of clean water. Anglican Aid is working on the ground with local organisations to change this. They're improving natural springs to give local families clean drinking water, which, can you believe this, cuts their medical bills by 30%. Now, for Aussies, the end of the financial year is approaching. Yes, American friends, the Aussie financial year is almost as weird as yours. For Aussies, this is a great time to make a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid. For the rest of the world, when isn't a good time to help families in Burundi access clean water? Will you please head to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions and make a donation before the 30th of June if you're an Aussie or, you know, if you're anywhere in the world, because every donation makes a huge difference. That's anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thanks so much.
We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Underceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Underceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Underceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Underceptions. A powerful minority is on the rise with a particular vision of America. You cannot separate God from politics. You can't take him out of our government. It's one of the oldest and most influential currents in U.S. politics. But in a country deeply divided, the Christian right has found a new voice. We desire to live in a Judeo-Christian nation with Judeo-Christian values. It claims Christianity is under attack and that God belongs in government. With pastors preaching its message in churches and its beliefs guiding ultra-conservative candidates in the midterm elections. I'm a Christian and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists. That's a clip from the BBC on the rise of Christian nationalism in the US. Christian lobbying is nothing new in America and lots of other places. There are loads of religious groups with long, sometimes complicated histories in politics. In the past decade, though, there's been a rise in the discussion of Christian nationalism. An article published in The New Yorker in 2023 explored this, drawing on the works of sociologists Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry. Christian refers less to theology than to heritage. Drawing on their own survey, Perry and Gorski found that more than a fifth of respondents who wanted the government to declare the US a Christian nation also described themselves as being secular or an adherent of a non-Christian faith. Paradoxically, so did more than 15% of self-identified Christians. This last data point might be a sign that Christian is starting to become something more like Jewish, an ancestral identity that you can keep, even if you don't keep the faith. How Christian is Christian Nationalism? The New Yorker, 2023. Some would say that Christian nationalism has its roots not in America, but in the Roman Empire of the 4th century. Let's take off another 50 years, off we go, to the conversion of Constantine. We've done a whole episode on Constantine with Alana Nobbs from Macquarie University Ancient History and Doug Lee from Nottingham, both top Constantine scholars. But I want the Nadia Williams account of Constantine. What are the biggest changes you see in Christianity and in cultural Christianity as a result of the long reign of Constantine? And you may say Constantine if you're yes. used to saying it like they say it in America. Yes. With Constantine, it's the question of what happens when the church is no longer persecuted. So, so far, the, the first two parts of 
the book, I'm looking at an era where Christians are kind of underground in some way. But with Constantine, you think like, well, here it is. Like we've arrived at what we've been waiting for all along. Christianity is legal. You no longer get like sent to the lions or something. So what happens? And the result is really not a golden kind of age of the church, but instead you have new ways for people to be cultural Christians. And Constantine inadvertently contributes to it by trying to be really heavy-handed in settling some disputes. So one example is the way he deals with the Donatist controversy in North Africa, where you have just a lot of baggage from him trying to deal with the situation from Rome. The Donatists were the original Puritans. We'll learn more about the Puritans in an upcoming episode. Donatists basically argued that if you'd gone soft during the Great Persecution, you know, denied Christ just to save your life, you could never be part of the true church. You could never be a real Christian. Most other Christians, though, found them insufferably elitist and heretical in saying Christ couldn't forgive even betrayal. And Constantine, taking his cues from more orthodox bishops, was pretty heavy-handed with the Donatists. It did nothing, though. These guys hung around for decades afterwards. Some would say they're still around today. And what we see is you can't just write a few letters from Rome and tell people to deal with it. Instead, you are looking at people who are trying to sort out beliefs and the question of what does it look like? So for Constantine, he's very much a Roman emperor, and that is his kind of cultural flaw. Where he's, which he brings into his approach to how he deals with Christians. He's very much like, make a policy, make a law, solve it. I got other things on my very long list, which to be true, a Roman emperor would have. And it's such a change from, say, like Trajan, who much earlier told Pliny, it's like, oh, don't bother with the Christians. You've got other things to deal with. So do you think this phenomenon of cultural Christianity becomes more and more prominent, more of a problem, as it were, in the early to mid-4th century? Maybe, because there are more Christians. So there are more people who can be influenced by the culture around them. And it is a funny thing, because they're still very Roman uh, in how they behave and how they act. So the power structures, especially, that Constantine brings in are very Roman power structures. And Christianity was not designed by people who wanted to like hoard power and take over in that kind of political way. Indeed, Christianity certainly was not designed by people who wanted to hoard power in a political way. We'll come back to Constantine, the imperial church and Christian nationalism. But first, we're off to Egypt to marvel at a group of ascetic holy men who are sometimes romantically seen as the epitome of piety. But Nadia reckons they're as worldly as anyone. I'm talking about the so-called Desert Fathers. The practice of desert asceticism began slightly before Constantine, when Anthony the Great struck out into the dunes of Egypt for the hot and holy summer of 275. Many followed his example, and over time, the holy hermits developed spiritual superstar status. Their feats included going around naked with only their wild long hair covering them, 
They refused to wash and eat and sleep. Many of them wouldn't even talk. They were a living symbol of the denial of the world for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. But Nadia reckons they were just cultural Christians of another kind. Let's take a very different turn because you have something to say about ascetics and the ascetic tradition in early Christianity. Specifically, the Desert Fathers, they are often put forward as the, by a certain kind of crowd, the the heroes, you know, who shunned worldly interests and went off into the desert and just, you know, beautifully served God. Firstly, before you um, give your damning critique, which I found utterly compelling, tell us about the Desert Fathers. Like, you know, for people who have never heard of them, who are they? They are those weird guys who decide everybody else is just not holy enough. So I'm going to go into the desert, far away from people, wear really weird clothes like sackcloth or just about nothing, and live on like three figs a day and a cup of water a week. And they do this for decades, and we have all kinds of sayings attributed to them that survive. Very like very funny and quirky, usually having to do with like, again, avoiding all food and drink and like any any comforts of life. So they're just weird. Uh, Anthony, who- Nadia doesn't hold back in her book. She writes, the desert ascetics themselves were ultimately fleeing the church, yet unable to escape their own sinfulness. It may seem shocking to think of them as cultural sinners, but if we examine their decision to pursue solitary lives apart from society and the church in light of the original biblical teachings, this becomes clear. Boom, Nadia. He went into an abandoned fort, kind of on the edges of the desert, and just stays there for 20 years, apparently just fighting demons every day on the inside of the fort. And finally, but but get this, like people people can feel his aura, you know, the, the aura of holiness, holiness cannot be contained by the walls of the fort. So 20 years after, people just break the gates, uh, bust in and find him. And miraculously, he looks exactly like he did the day he walked in. Leaving aside that historical detail, people often, I mean, people in the day, Christians in the day sort of elevate, well, not all Christians, but but some Christians elevated these guys as, you know, like, they're like Marvel superheroes uh, of Christianity. But but you suggest somewhat daringly that that they are really just co-opting, reflecting pagan culture. Lay out your argument for us. So my argument is that it's a lot easier to be holy in isolation when other people are not inciting you to anger or, you know, anything, anything else. I was wondering as I was writing this chapter, am I being influenced excessively by the fact that I'm an introvert and a mother of small children? There's just so much noise always. It would seem to be so, so much easier to be holy alone. And we hear some of those, some of those very emotions in the words of some of those desert fathers that like, if somebody comes into their presence, you've driven God's voice out of my head. It's like, well, but we're talking about people and serving people and loving people. So you get 
these stories that are almost comical of trying to escape reality, and then instead they become these spectacles. And that's what I talk about in the chapter about them, how a whole tour of the Roman Empire develops around the ascetics. So just like people could go on a grand tour in the Roman Empire and visit famous pagan shrines like Delphi, you could go instead, if you were a Christian, you could go on a more respectable version of the grand tour and go visit the various desert saints from weird to weirder all around Egypt. And we know about this because we have books of people who had done the grand tour and then wrote about it. It's like, let me tell you, first I visited this stop, at the next stop, you will see, I mean, it's really tour guide materials. At the next stop, you see the guy who eats crickets, you know. At the next stop, you see the guy who never shows himself to anybody. But if you walk just close by, you will be healed or something like that. So there are miracles attributed to them. All kinds of weird stuff where you realize they have become spectacles. When, you know, the original Christian vision was, as you, you said, that, that spirituality is expressed in community and the messiness of annoying people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We need the annoying people. They keep us like grounded in God's word and God's world. But if we head back from the desert to the cities, it's not like things are spiritually marvelous. After Constantine, Christians are trying to work out what to do with their newfound connections with power. What does it all mean that the emperor is now a Christian? Constantine himself didn't impose Christianity on anyone. That's one of the myths we explored in our episode on his reign, episode 61, imaginatively titled Emperor Constantine. But some Christians in his day and afterwards were wrestling with the prospects of a kind of Christian nationalism. We've got the great 4th century bishop and chronicler Eusebius of Caesarea. He does seem to be a fan of the idea of a new imperial reign of Christ over the earth. Two generations later, though, we've got Augustine of Hippo in modern-day Algeria. In Augustine's day, the city of Rome fell to the Goths. That's the year 410. So he has to do some heavy intellectual lifting concerning the right relationship between earthly empires and the kingdom of God. It's the subject of his famous work, The City of God. The earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all even out of human beings, that she might adore them with sacrifices. The heavenly one, on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world, makes no false gods for herself. On the contrary, she herself is made by the true God, that she may be herself a true sacrifice to him. Augustine, City of God. So let's head to Algeria the final stop on our cultural tour. I want to compare two histories after Constantine. So I want to compare Eusebius and his ecclesiastical history and then St. Augustine and, and his City of God, which is not exactly a, a history, but, it, but it, it is an account of Christianity in the Roman world. So lay them out as, as you do wonderfully in the book, but, but give my listeners, a sense of their very different approaches. Eusebius first. So for Eusebius, Eusebius is very much 
a historian in the Greco-Roman tradition. In the Roman world, whenever you wrote a history, you usually start with the most important event in the history of the world, which is the foundation of Rome, right? That is the most important event, if you're a Roman. And that is exactly kind of what Eusebius tries to imitate, except he substitutes the foundation of Rome with foundation of the church. So he has this like glorious prologue about, let me tell you the history of the church from the beginnings. And it's so like echoing Livy, the great Roman historian, who had his own great history of the foundation of Rome and everything after that. So Eusebius is imitating the other previous Greco-Roman historians, except he tries to argue that the church itself is a state of its own and worthy of grand histories in the same style as, you know, what Thucydides or Livy were writing about with respect to their own great cities. And of course, Augustine flips all of this over and says, Rome doesn't matter. This is not about the earthly city. I would actually say that Augustine sees himself as a historian in the city of God. He is writing a history, but for Augustine, a history that focuses just on earthly institutions, the way Eusebius tried to do with the church, because Eusebius, I mean, Eusebius is a Christian, but he tries to portray the church as an earthly institution, which perhaps is also the way Constantine was thinking about it. And Constantine and Eusebius seem to have aligned pretty well. Eusebius makes no secret of his love for Constantine. But for Augustine, anybody who thinks of the church as just another institution of which you can write the history is missing the mark. It's really about the kingdom of God, the city of God, which is not visible. It is not here on earth. And Rome, friends, is not it. Yeah. It's fascinating because Augustine's writing 80 years after Eusebius, and you might have thought this nationalist view of Christianity would only be getting stronger in the church, but but Augustine really bucks against that and says you can't place your hopes either in the, the former e- eternal city, Rome, or the physical manifestation of the church. So, so what's driving that? The single greatest traumatic event of Augustine's life and probably the lives of everybody who lived through it, the fall of Rome in 410 to the Goths. So for Augustine, perhaps had had he lived 80 years earlier, he might have been closer to Eusebius in the way he thought about the church. But it seems like it really shook him deeply and shook everybody in the Roman Empire deeply that Rome, the city that had not been conquered for so long, since its earliest days, suddenly was taken over, sacked, and it was just a really brutal, violent sack of a city. And Augustine gives us a really graphic description, which makes it clear that he did talk to survivors who we know poured into North Africa. So people left in droves because there was so much destruction, devastation, famine. And so we see this disappointment was something that made Augustine realize, like, we cannot count on this as our rock. This is not what we look forward to. So let me be controversial, and I can do this because I'm a foreigner living in America. (laughs) Am I taking things too far to say, you know, you almost see in Eusebius a Christian nationalist, and you see Augustine as a far more sober-minded critic of that notion. Well, I definitely say in the book that uh, Augustine is fighting against Christian nationalism. I did not go so far as to call Eusebius a Christian nationalist, but I think the shoe fits. 
that's exactly what we see with Constantine, the idea of church and state combined quite nicely together, which for emperors who want rules and clear boxes to put things into works well. But the kingdom of God is not like this neat box that you can classify in those ways. And that's what Augustine is arguing, that the easy solutions, the things that people take for granted, are not necessarily the correct ones. But you also have to keep in mind, up until 410, the sack of Roman 410, the Roman Empire has always been the home of Christians. Like all of Christianity, all of Christian history up to that point has always been in the context of the Roman Empire. So in some ways, like you can't blame them too much for confusing the two, that Rome and Christ kind of go together. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. All historians agree that the basic theme of Jesus' teaching was what he called the kingdom of God. It sounds airy-fairy, but it's far from it. Jews in Jesus' day believed that God would one day right the wrongs of history. He would establish justice on the earth and prove himself king. And they called that the kingdom of God. It wasn't so much about going to heaven, it was really about heaven coming to earth to put things right. The thought was based on two Old Testament ideas. First, God promised King David, 1000 BC or thereabouts, that one of his descendants would sit on a universal throne forever. And if you want to read that, check out 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. The second promise was that God would prove himself king. Isaiah 52 predicts how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who say to Zion, your God reigns as king. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. So centuries later, in the years just before Jesus, this promise was interpreted politically in a kind of Jewish nationalism. We've got a hymn written in Jerusalem around 50 BC that we know Jews were singing just after the Romans moved in to take Judea. The hymn looks forward to God's kingdom kicking out the false empire, the Romans. And here are some of the words. The kingdom of our God is forever over the nations in judgment. Lord, raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel, to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. And he will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. That's called the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17. Here's the thing. Jesus used the same language of the kingdom of God and Messiah, but he did so with a radically different outlook. The kingdom won't come in a tornado of political and military justice. It is small and humble. It's going to win the world through service. Imagine knowing that hymn I just read and then listening to Jesus one day in Galilee say this. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew 
and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. That's Luke 13. Or consider Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Or think finally of the famous Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the Our Father. Jesus said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus believed in the same kingdom of God that was promised in the scriptures of Israel. He believed God would do something about the mess in the world and he would prove himself king over everything. But he taught that this rule of God was marked by humility, like that of a child. The future kingdom is going to bring peace. And so Christians, those who belong to the kingdom, are to get busy being peacemakers. The kingdom will be a kingdom of love, and so Christians get busy practicing love in anticipation of the kingdom. That's the meaning of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The only Christian nationalism that Jesus taught, and Augustine after him, was not a worldly, cultural, political one where Christians get to call the shots, but one where the nation is filled with Christians willing to serve, suffer, and love in anticipation of the coming kingdom of love. You can press play now. You might come away from listening to Nadia or reading her book thinking, Christians really suck. They're always just shaped by the culture, whether the sexual culture of first century Corinth or the nationalistic Christian fervor of the fourth century. There's a truth there. We're all products of our particular time and place. The marvel is that there were those who could break the mold who were not shaped by culture. I'm thinking of the wonderful Perpetua and Felicitas in the early 200s, the humble service of Cyprian in the mid-3rd century, or Augustine's refusal to advocate for a Christian nation on earth. I asked Nadia how she feels about her research. Is the punchline a bit sceptical? Is it the case that Christians just suck? What would you say to my sceptical listener listening who thinks you've actually, for most of this interview, given a pretty good argument not to take Christianity any further because the church is full of hypocrites and it looks like Christianity doesn't have the power to change people substantially. I mean, that's 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 the point of cultural Christianity. So what have you got for my my sceptical listener who says, thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll close the door behind me. 
I hope that's not, I, I hope they, they're not confirmed in their skepticism. I actually found this book very encouraging for my faith because again, it's not about perfection. If the standard were perfection in every day, that's, it's not gonna happen. We all, we all fall short in all kinds of different ways. And if you're not a cultural Christian, you're a cultural sinner of some other sort, perhaps a secular one, because the whole point is the culture around us influences us. And that's an argument that's just a plain historical argument that the culture you live in shapes you. And the question is, are you going to let it shape you? Or are you going to look at something more beautiful that can shape you in other ways? And so with Christianity, there's the idea that we're all, the doctrine kind of of gradual sanctification, the idea that Christians in their walk throughout their lives are being transformed to look more like Jesus rather than people in this world. And for better or worse, it's not going to be achieved on this side of heaven. So even the desert fathers, and that's the point, like they were failing, but it gives hope. So for everybody else, there is no hope. That's just the culture could make you a horrible person. And that's just what it is. But with Christianity, you have that hope of something more beautiful. And just the idea of God's love for all of us, despite all of the crazy stuff we do and think on a regular basis. God even had mercy on the Desert Fathers. Indeed. The weird and the wonderful. Nadia Williams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John. If you like Underceptions and you want more, subscribe to Underceptions Plus, where you'll get tons of extras for each episode. I mean, this week, our Underceivers get a wonderful extra where Nadia Williams explains how, coming from a sceptical background, she embraced the Christian faith for herself. She has some wonderful thoughts about the Gospels as historical sources. Just head to underceptions.com forward slash plus for all the benefits. And why not check out our other two podcasts in the Underceptions Network that have just started their new season. Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat is a series of short audio essays set in a beautiful soundscape designed to make you wonder. The other is DeLorean Philosophy with well-known Aussie author and commentator Steve McAlpine. He helps us think through the future implications of today's news. So check out Small Wonders and DeLorean Philosophy, if you haven't already, over at underceptions.com. And if you have questions about this or other episodes, you can head to our website and send us a question. Try recording your question so we can hear your voice in the next Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by Mark Ebola Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant. Editing is by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast.